For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. I encourage you to begin sharing one episode a week on social media related to rethinking how we approach drugs. That's how it gets on other people's radar. And this week, I've got the perfect piece for you to share. It's called Everyone Benefits When Police Departments Hire Social Workers, which was published by Medium in July. The author is our guest on the show today, retired Alexandria, Kentucky Police Chief Mike Ward. Chief Ward, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you. Chief Ward began his law enforcement career in 1985, and he served as a patrol officer, a sergeant, a lieutenant. Um, Before becoming chief, he introduced the concept of hiring social workers to serve as liaisons between the department and the community and social service agencies. Chief Ward retired from policing just this year. He's the past president for the Kentucky Association of Chiefs of Police. He previously served as vice chair of the Kentucky Law Enforcement Council. He attended Northern Kentucky University, and he's a graduate of the FBI National Academy. Chief Ward, before we get into the work that you've done and the outcomes you've seen with police hiring social workers, tell us a story of how you got into policing. Oh, well, how I got into it? Mm-hmm. I, um, I was a senior in high school, and an uh, Air Force recruiter came to the school in October of my senior year, and I went down to talk to him, and I enlisted in the United States Air Force as a security police officer. Uh, That October, I went in in June of 78, and I did four years active duty, uh, two years in Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, two years in Araxas, Greece, and then I got out and was in the reserves for another seven years before I got off altogether. Um, when I got off active duty, I started uh, uh, started as a police officer with uh, a reserve police officer with the city of Fort Thomas, and then I went on to uh, part-time at Highland Heights. And it took a few years to get hired full-time, but in 85 I did, and uh, my career just kind of went from there. The idea for this show came about through a family reunion that I went to in another state this summer. So several of my cousins are law enforcement officers, and one of them mentioned that Mm -hmm. their city's department had just hired a social worker because so many of the calls that they get are either addiction or mental health related. And she was commenting on how helpful that had already been. Um, So your article came out just the week after I had that conversation with my cousin, And I read it, and it echoed the same thing she had just told me, which was, we're not social workers. We're not mental health professionals. But she said the vast majority of calls that they are responding to now are either addiction or mental health related. Is this a national trend that police need more tools just to, other than just arrest, to handle the calls that are coming in? Well, in the in the early 90s is when we started decriminalizing mental health, which was exactly what needed to happen. Um, but at the time that we did that, what, what, what didn't happen was we did not increase uh, the funding uh, to provide uh, assistance and treatment to those in mental health. Um, at, at that time, the courts did that. 
and uh, some of our state-run institutions did that for us. So we we failed, I think, to uh, provide uh, private assistance for those folks, or the cost of it, if they did have insurance, was so drastically high, a lot of people could not afford it. Um, <clears throat> so as the years went on, and we went from uh, what, what I would say from a professional model of policing into a community-oriented policing, um, we started looking at the way we handle calls uh, for service much differently. Um, the substance abuse and mental health issues kind of evolved into what we call CIT, which is uh, crisis intervention team training. And what that did was we specifically trained officers uh, in an in-depth course of how to handle what are all the nuances that um, affect and evolve around mental health, substance abuse. And, uh, you know, in, in some way they go hand in hand because um, the substance abuse becomes a way of self-medicating, uh, mm -hmm. trying to, to make it through the day. And um, so that all evolved. And although we have had social work, uh, social workers within our cabinet for family uh, services in, in our state, and, and most states have a, a state-run uh, system like that, We've got some fantastic social workers that work for the state, but they're overwhelmed. And the communication is limited between law enforcement and the cabinet. And what I was finding was, and just personally throughout my career, all the forms that I filled out and sent to the cabinet asking them for help for families or individuals um, I never got feedback. I have no idea if the state ever followed up with them unless there were criminal charges that resulted, which was very, very rare. And, and I think that's correct. It's by design. Mm -hmm. It should be very rare. So you had this um, kind of communication breakdown that's happening between we're trying to help people, we're sending them over to the state social worker right. side, but we're not getting any kind of feedback on what actually happened or what we could do with that person Correct. better. Or it, So what what put that in your mind to, to actually for the police department to hire a social worker in-house? Well, um, as, as the story goes, I was in, um, uh, I was at an IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. So I was in the other Alexandria for a little time. And we were working on the um, um, pretrial justice reform and how law enforcement was going to respond to that that was going around the country at the time. And Kentucky and Colorado were two of the leaders in that. Um, this was probably around December of 2015, I believe. And um, in the course of the... Uh, conversation with about 30 different um, administrators and chiefs from around the country, um, we were talking specifically, and we used the example of a young man who is uh, married to a young wife, they have a child, uh, struggling to make ends meet, 
living paycheck to paycheck. This young guy works very hard, very conscientious. He's a construction worker. And one night after work on a Friday, uh, when he got paid, he and a couple of his buddies went to a bar, and um, they got into trouble, and the boy ends up getting arrested for doing something very stupid. Um, He can't afford to pay bond. So he has to stay in jail the weekend until he goes to arraignment on Monday morning. Well, the problem with that is he missed the concrete pour on Saturday morning, and because he didn't show up for work, he loses his job. And so the conversation was, what are all the social implications behind that? One, did he have to spend the whole weekend in jail? Was was he someone that we could release and trust that he would show up for arraignment on Monday morning? Um, and all those things that that are associated with pre-trial, pre-trial justice reform, which I supported wholeheartedly at the time. Um, one of the chiefs from southern Wisconsin made the comment that uh, we just let our PSW handle that. Now, I'm real close to the land of acronyms, Washington, (laughs) D.C., but that was one acronym that I did not and never heard of. What is a PSW? So I turned to a a gentleman to my right, and I asked him, and he said, I don't have a clue. And I turned to one to my left, and uh, he kind of chuckled and says, I think it's one of those darn tree huggers. And I laughed and looked it up on my uh, computer And sure enough, it stood for police social worker, and I'd not heard of that. So that evening, I had dinner with another chief who was, and we were discussing it. And he was in the middle of uh, trying to implement the same program on his agency. The problem was the city manager wanted to create a separate department. And he didn't want that. And we had the conversation of the importance of embedding social work within the police department, because then I as chief and my command staff could control the communication. And that's critical. Um, And fix that communication gap that was happening. They're second responders. When someone, someone, people... When I looked at my own agency, 67% of our calls for service back in 2015 were non-criminal related. Wow. Now, what Two-thirds. I, what I mean by that is the reality, people don't know who to call when they have a crisis. So we're, we're conditioned. If it's, a, if it's a crisis, it's an emergency, what do you do? You dial 911. Well, that emergency may be a snake in the garage, a spider crawling across the sink. Um, you would be amazed at the number of runs that, that police officers go on that have nothing to do with crime. It's just people are in crisis. And um, take a, a young mother, single parent, uh, has a 12-year-old son, starting to be a teenager, and he doesn't want to get out of bed and go to school in the morning. She's got to get him on the bus because she has to catch the bus to go to work, and if she's late, she's in trouble. So she doesn't know who to call. 
And so she calls 911 and asks for help. And an officer goes, uh, been there, I've done that. And you tell the boy to get out of bed, it's time to go to school, and he mouths off. Well, the easy thing to do is take the mattress, flip him over, dump him on the floor, get him up, put him in the car, and take him to school the way he's dressed. Now, you do that one time, and the boy won't do it again. That's what we think. Um, but that it, it's the problem is bigger than that. It's you have a, a child that's um, acting out, not paying attention. You've got a parent who is struggling to, uh, to be a parent by herself, and you've got um, issues that, as a police officer, I'm not trained to solve those problems. We look at community policing, as a, and we tell our officers, well, what you need to do is go back to that resident and talk to that boy and talk to that young mother and help them when the problem is does not exist. Well, that's really great when you have a numbers, when you have a lot of policemen, but most agencies in this country are doing so much more with less that we don't have the time nor the personnel to do that. So we've been, I think community policing in this respect has failed us in that we have been trying way too hard to make social workers out of police officers. That's a really We're not great point. That yeah. way. We're not trained that way. We don't think that way. And f- for good reason. Right. Social workers don't think like policemen. They're not wired like policemen. And they're there. They have the resources to reach out to the existing agencies in your community and pull those resources in to help families in crisis. So how would that, that situation with the kid who is, the mom Mm -hmm. is kind of at the end of her rope with the kid, and so old school way, you go, you take the kid (laughs) to school, and that's the end of, you hope that's the end of that, but really you know this is a symptom of some deeper issues that are going on with the mom and the kid and whatnot. So you, your department took the step, you hired a social worker, you hired two social workers uh, to be embedded mm-hmm. in your police department. That's been happening now for a couple of years. So let's say that situation happened today with, with mm-hmm. social workers embedded in a police department. How would a situation like that be handled today? Well, if the social worker is, if it's, you know, early in the morning, they're at work already or they're on their way into work. An officer can call them on the phone, ask them to come, um, or um, at least give the officer some advice over the telephone on how to handle it. Mm. And then if mom has to go to work, then they schedule a time with mom on the phone that when she is home, that they can come back and they can talk to mom and they can talk to the son and they can figure out what's going on and then assist them in getting help but and that help already exists in the community um right. there Just are so many it. agencies out there that can you know it would love to step in and help this family but me as a patrol officer i don't have all that information i might have a business card 
but I don't have a relationship with that organization where our social workers make it a point to develop a relationship with those workers at those different agencies. And oftentimes they have their cell phone numbers and they can call them directly and get them to a scene or get advice from them so they can get these people some, some assistance. So just for the after first you, time, oh, go ahead. I was, go, I was just going to say for the first time in my career, I can honestly say that our agency was helping people, not just responding to calls and um, neutralizing an emergency situation, but we were following up with our uh, police social workers and truly getting people help. And from an administrative point of view, what I'm looking at doing then is reducing the calls for service that we respond back to the same address for the same thing that I can't fix. Hmm. Yeah, it's like using the actually addressing the root of what's happening instead of just trying mm-hmm. to kind of continually put the Band-Aid on and then you have to keep going out to put another Band-Aid on instead of addressing the cause right. of what's actually happening. Right. So when you hired your social workers, you pretty immediately started zeroing in on how could you help um, people that were in drug addiction. Tell us about what, what prompted that uh, change for you or that maybe focusing in on what could you do to alleviate well, drug addiction? Originally, um, we hired the social worker to, to, to do um, a multitude of, of things. Um, like everyone else, um, we are in the greater metropolitan area of Cincinnati, and we were hit hard with the heroin problem. Now, we didn't have a, a, a high trafficking, heroin trafficking issue. We had a high heroin usage issue. And um, my uh, wife and I attended a funeral for a young man that went to school with one of our daughters who had passed from a heroin overdose. And I had seen or I have known this boy since kindergarten, and his parents were good friends of ours. And when I stood there crying with his dad, um, I I felt helpless. Like there was something that we need to do, um, but throwing addicts into jail, again, is not the answer. Um, Although, at the time... The best detox centers we had were our jails. And um, couple that with the pretrial justice initiative that was going on, we don't want to keep people in jail very long. And this is just my opinion. I don't have any stats to back this up, but I have seen this happen way too often. When someone gets arrested, they go to jail, they're identified as a heroin addict, they start the detox process. Two to three days later, they go to arraignment. The judge releases them. And then the first thing they do, because they're in the middle of the detox, they've got to go use. So they run out. They use the same level of heroin that they did three days ago, throws their body into an anaphylactic shock, and they die. 
Um, so, you know, are were we creating um, a problem that that we just uh, because of the way the system was set up? Um, and everybody has good intentions of all these different systems, but when you put them together, uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm. So I sat down with uh, our social worker, Kelly, at the time. We only had one. And um, I said, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. So we modeled a program, um, the ANGEL program, after Gloucester, Massachusetts, and the uh, community Uh, training and support after Arlington Mass. Those were two of the leaders at the time in dealing with heroin issues. And we created uh, our ANGEL program and the Alexandria um, Community Training and Support. And what we did was, uh, and I'm going over the next few years, we probably had um, about 100 people that we had placed in the treatment. Now that's extremely important because most people that picked up the phone and tried to get themselves placed in a treatment facility were always put on a waiting list. Kelly had gone out and she had developed a relationship with the people that work at these treatment centers. And in fact, to get one female into treatment we uh, well, actually, she and one of her angel volunteers drove this young lady all the way to Louisa, Kentucky, which is in far east Kentucky by the Virginia border or West Virginia border. I'm sorry, and um, to, to a, a, a facility that could take a female. Um, that person doesn't have the ability to find places like that, mm-hmm. so. Um, that's where our social worker was so valuable in helping these folks get into treatment. And then they continuously followed up with people that had been victims of an overdose and they just weren't willing to go to treatment yet. They hadn't hit rock bottom. And they stayed in touch with them or with their family and worked with the family to get them into treatment. And that process still continues to this day. That's a really important um, piece of it because every anybody who works with people who are addicted knows that they're, the vast majority of them are not ready yet to get help. So then what do we do? Right. Do we just say, well, too bad for you? Or do we say, hey, you know what? We're going to keep checking in. We're going to be here for you. The moment you're ready to get help, we're standing by mm-hmm. to help you find that place. We want you to stay alive. Um, I love that. That's one of the things you've been able to do is not just help people get into treatment right then, but through your police social workers, following up with the people who aren't ready yet so that when they are, when they get to that point, you're able to um, to meet their needs. So what impact has this had on your police community uh, relations with having a social worker um, really trying well, to engage people. I've got to needs. say, when I first came up with the idea my office, to an officer, they all thought I was that crazy. <laughs> that was uh, my next question is, what did your department think? <laughs> they, they just, you, you know, I, I think uh, a day one of the sergeants walked in and closed the door. 
to my office. And, and whenever a sergeant did that, I would cringe because it was usually a personnel issue that he didn't know what to do with. Um, and he, he came in and he had just come back from um, an executive development course down at our academy. And he sat down across from me and he said, Chief, I owe you an apology. And I looked at him real strange and I said, for what? And he said, when you first came up with the idea of hiring a social worker, I supported you, but I really thought you had gone over the deep end. He said, I really thought it was crazy. And he said, the subject came up in our course down at the academy and I found myself defending the program because I have seen the good that Kelly has done for us, and I've seen what it does for us. And he said, when we took a break, I, I realized that you were right, and um, this program is successful and it works. And I think for, and I appreciated that honesty from him. But for me, when I knew the program was working, is when the oldest, crustiest, uh, most cynical person or officer on the department one day got a call. And uh, I was standing in the squad room, and he came in and he grabbed Kelly and he said, We need, we got a call. I need your help. Come with me. And she got in a cruiser and went with him on the call. When I saw that, that's when I realized that not only was the program accepted, but she was accepted as well. Mm. And, um, and you know, and i got to say this, not every social worker could be a police social worker. It takes somebody with the ability to work closely with police, understand their cynicism, understand the way they think, the way they walk and talk, and oftentimes not get offended by that because um, we, we work in an environment where 90% of our contact with the public is in a negative mm. light. Mm -hmm. And so for professional police officers to conduct themselves um, honestly and uh, with uh, professionalism, with credibility, uh, takes a special person to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, just, you know, just watching here recently the, the pictures of officers in uh, New York getting thrown water on them and soft drinks and things thrown at them, and, and they walked away from that, you know, if that happened to you or me walking down the street or if somebody does that to us at Walmart or something like that, we're going off. So has Doctors that are trained to do that? Has the they're, has the 90% gotten uh, of the negative? Have you seen that getting better in your community that there's more positive interactions with the public as the public is um is kind of seeing this uh also having maybe more positive interactions with law enforcement as they're, you know, through the help of, you know, the mom with the son who won't go to school. And she's seeing, you know, here's officers that are really helping me in the, with the long run by providing the support of a police social worker. Has that helped with those community interactions? It helps. That? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It helps tremendously. 
but you always have that element of society that no matter what happens, when police arrive on the scene, the cell phones come out, the taunting starts, anything that they can do to go viral on social media is their goal. Mm. And um, it, and we recognize that we have to, mm-hmm. and and so that causes us to um, uh, really mind our manners, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's gotten much more difficult to police today than it has in the past. So um, how did you approach the? the cost benefit of this because so selling the idea to officers Mm -hmm. is one thing then actually the the fiscal you know how do you actually fund this position because the it's coming i'm assuming from the police department's budget where there's lots of other things police departments you know want to spend their budgeting on how did you how did you do that and how do you when you talk about this with other people how are other departments making that switch to including this in their budget well, you know, with just keeping the pension costs in mind um, in, around the states, um, when I hire a social worker, um, they're not on a hazardous duty pension. So they're not on the same pension system that police officers are. They're in a non-hazardous um, uh, classification. So immediately that reduces the cost to the city and to the taxpayers. that position does. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have to buy them uh, a $28,000 vehicle, and then I have to put $15,000 worth of equipment or more if I have to buy uh, radios. Um, That, I mean, that equipment cost goes into a police car. Um, So, and I, the, the cost to outfit an officer with uniforms, gun belts, body armor, weapons, uh, individual equipment is anywhere between eight to $10,000 initially. So with all that being said, I purchased a, um, a small economical car for the social worker that cost about on a state contract price, about $16,000. I didn't have to put any equipment in it. Uh, they don't run blue lights. They're not sworn people, sworn officers. They're second responders. Um, I bought them some polo shirts with logos on it and police social worker. And uh, uh, I did buy them a portable radio so that they can call for assistance when they're out and they can talk directly to the officers on the street and vice versa. Um, so the, the, the cost of initially hiring a social worker was much less expensive than hiring another police officer. And then you're but getting to see the, the benefits quickly, of having, right. Very, very solving quickly these that social worker became the busiest person on the department because she was taking all the roll calls and she was looking at them and officers got to the point where they would put a tagline in a, in a, a, a CAD call, a computer-aided dispatch, and into their report that uh, request follow-up by police social worker mm. on this particular call. And so she was following up with not just the work that came to her, but the work that came to all of the officers on all of the shifts. 
and mm-hmm. she she was starting to get overwhelmed, which is why I went to our city government and asked them to hire a second social worker. And they agreed, and we did. And so now the work is balanced between the two, and uh, they're doing they're doing wonderful things within the community. And as a result of all this, we started to see other agencies um, hire social workers and are experiencing the exact same successes that we are. That's so exciting. Uh, can you give us an example? Do you have any examples you can share before we wrap up of just a, a real-life example of how this has impacted uh, maybe someone struggling with addiction, but maybe just... Um... Yeah. No, I think one of the biggest ones was uh, that was handed to Kelly when we first hired her. Kelly Pompilio is who the um, social worker was that we hired, and she's a wonderful young lady and a great gal, um, a great social worker. And... Um, we had a, a veteran. It was a Vietnam veteran that lived by himself in an apartment complex, uh, and he suffered from severe PTSD. Um, he was uh, verified by by the guys that, that he was a tunnel rat in Vietnam, which is one of the guys that went down in the holes and after the the VC, and it was a very stressful job. Um, this guy would wake up in the middle of the night. Screaming, uh, we get calls of, of of him screaming, or he would roll over and dial nine one one, and all he needed was a uniform presence. He need, once he saw a uniform, he would calm down, and we were responding to him probably four, uh, four or five times a week. Wow, um, he was having these difficulties and. And God bless my officers, especially ones on third shift. If they got a call to his house in the middle of the night and they weren't busy, I had guys that would go by and pick up a cup of coffee and take it to him and sit at his kitchen table and just talk to him for half hour or 45 minutes, however long they could, until they got another call just to calm him down. This went on for probably nine months or more. Kelly comes in, she goes to his home, she sits down with him. He has a kitchen table full of medicine bottles from the VA. Didn't know what he was supposed to take, had no idea. Long story short, she gets permission from him, works with the doctors. They get all of his medications straightened out. She works with what little family he did have that he had disassociated himself with over the years. And we didn't hear from this man for months. Absolute silence as far as calls for service. Once she got him back on track, working with the doctors, got his medication straightened out, and then she would check on him to make sure he would take his medicine. That's things that you would think a caregiver and the family would do, but those are the people that fall through the cracks. Those mm-hmm. are the folks that are missed. And uh, um, another quick scenario was uh, we got a request by our fire department from the paramedics to go. Uh, they kept responding to a, uh, a home where this gentleman was, he had severe cancer. 
and he was laying in bed, and his wife had early-onset dementia. So there was a lot of confusion. He would, they would find him oftentimes laying there in his own feces and, and urine, and it was just it was a mess, as you can imagine. But they would never want to go to the hospital. They have the right to refuse to go to the hospital. So they asked if we, they could use Kelly. She went down. She sat in the home, talked to him for a little bit, called the squad, got him transported to the hospital. The doctor said had he not been there, he probably would have died in an hour. The cancer was so severe, and he was in such serious pain that was not being controlled that they got him comfortable. Now, within 24, 48 hours, they got him in the in the hospice and he ended up passing but the man passed with dignity and comfort and i think that's you you can't you can't do anything more for someone than to give them that dignity and that comfort at that time of their other life and and we worked with the wife to get him um through the um the funeral process and um and then got her some help, too. So those are things that we're doing for the community that an ordinary patrol officer is not trained to do and doesn't have the time to do it. But when somebody picks up the phone and calls 911, they're asking for help. And I think we as a community need to reach out and provide as much help as we can mindful of our budgets and the social worker in my opinion fit that billet for us 100 percent. that's amazing thank you so much chief ward for joining us today no problem thanks for having me i appreciate it i think so many people are looking for um, hope in uh, so much of the mental health crisis that we have and the addiction crisis that we have. And one of the things your social workers are responding to are, you know, overdoses where they're being reversed. But then what do we do to help the person who nearly died and the ability to continue to follow up with them and provide a potential for treatment and help any steps that they're willing to take? And uh, when I read this article, that is what I felt most was hope, this concrete, actionable hope for better addressing some of the problems that we're facing. You can find Chief Ward's article posted on our Facebook page, and you can reach out to him directly at mward at kypolicechiefs.org. He does, um, he's still actively involved in lots of things related to law enforcement and police social work, and he speaks on this issue as well. If you want to dive deeper into the lives and stories of people like Chief Ward's program is helping, you can also check out episode nine of the End Up For Good podcast. We interviewed Liz Evans who's worked to help and equip the most vulnerable populations, people struggling with severe mental illness and substance use disorder. And her experiences and stories from her work, to me, are just so humanizing and help illustrate why police adding social workers to their department could be so beneficial. Thank you for joining us today as we uncover solutions that save lives and help people improve their lives. And police social workers are improving the lives of people in crisis, and that is a huge win. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. 
Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.